central topic is democracy and counterterrorism. Quote, uh, President of the Supreme Court of Israel, Aaron Barak's famous quote. The teachers of the IDC. Okay. Uh, distinguished scholar as well with Princeton University Press. The famous quote from the 1999 Supreme Court case that banned torture was that democracies have to fight terrorism with one hand tied behind their back, but that makes them stronger. And that's an empirical question whether they have to and whether it makes them stronger, but the idea would be twofold in the way that I introduced the topic last time in, after, in our class, which is that they're kind of consequentialist ethics, you know, what is the utilitarian consequences of a policy, and then there's uh, accepted Kantian ethics. The division is working, everything is okay now? Yeah, everything's fine. Oh, tell me, after I finish the introduction, uh, Kantian ethics uh, are ethics that are more like that you shouldn't do something not because it empirically is better or worse but rather because uh, it's right or wrong uh, and most of our public discourse you know includes those two philosophical ethics and then there's also the notion of interest realists whether they're in international or domestic politics suggest that you know we shouldn't kid ourselves about being nice people we do what's best for us and namely us with a you know, the narrowly defined, not the broader society, and so forth. And in, in a dangerous world, that's all you can do. So uh, those are three ways to look at these questions. Again, let me repeat them. Consequentialism is to look at the consequences, short run, long run, um, good and bad, your group and maybe the whole world. Kantian, uh, Immanuel Kant's the philosopher, tends to Say the, the most important criteria is to do what's categorically right or inherently right or, and to avoid evil be, just because it is inherently evil, regardless of the consequences. And thirdly, realists say that um, it may be in our self-interest to be good, um, but the real reason to be good is because it helps us otherwise do what's, what you have to do. And um, what you have to do should be defined strictly rather than broadly. But in a dangerous world, uh, strict becomes looser because there's so much less trust, there's so much more uncertainty, the rules are more vague and contested and so forth. So democracy and terrorism, our topic for today from our distinguished speaker, uh, is related to this framework. I'm not going to take any more of this time. And are we set up to go? Or? Uh, just let's use the DVD, that would be much easier. Do you have a DVD here? I believe so. That would be easier than you can start talking and I'll fiddle. Okay. Well, good afternoon to all of you. Uh, uh, it's a great honor to be here. First of all, I've never been to Georgia or Alabama before, so this is the first time. Uh, don't let my American accent fool me. I'm a born native Israeli. I have the English with American accent because my late father was an American who immigrated to Israel in the late 50s. And uh, I uh, earned a very important strategic asset for the fields that I'm dealing with. Now, I lived in Chicago for a few years when I was a kid, but that was a long time ago, so I'm really excited that tomorrow I'm flying to Chicago after not being there for a very long time. Uh, I want to say a few things about the institute that I work in. Uh, uh, the IDC is the only private university in Israel. All, all universities are state universities, Tel Aviv, Haifa, Jerusalem. Uh, the IDC was founded in 1994 with the uh, um, initiative to uh, train and develop the future leadership of Israel to do some uh, reform in the governmental system. 
and also to focus mainly on the policy, strategy, conflict resolution, terrorism, and counterterrorism. Uh, I think we're the only academic institute in the world today that has a master's program in counterterrorism. Don't confuse this with Homeland Security. Although Homeland Security might include terrorism, our master program focuses especially on counterterrorism. Uh, I'm the academic advisor of our international track and diplomacy, uh, strategy and government, and also terrorism and counterterrorism. Uh, we have the biggest international school in Israel. We have more than, uh, I would say, almost 1,700 students from abroad, Jews, Christians from all over the world, the U.S., Europe, Latin America, Russian Federation, uh, whatever. And uh, I think that one of the unique aspects of this institution is that besides the academic ivory tower, uh, most of us in the government school also have professional backgrounds, either from the intelligence community, uh, the army, security services, whatever. So when we deal with these things, we're not only dealing with the theoretic aspect of, for example, terrorism or counterterrorism or government or whatever, but uh, also from field experience and really know how the real world works. And ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to democracies and counterterrorism, uh, uh, this is a very, very serious challenge, as you'll see, uh, 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 as you'll see later on. My major uh, interest when it comes to terrorism and counterterrorism, it's not the only thing that I deal with, is the transition from the secular political agenda to the religious political agenda, violent agenda. Because what we've been witnessing in the past four decades, actually since the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1979, is a gradual transition from secular political violence to religious political violence, which is an entirely new, different ballgame. Very different than the kind of terrorism that any democracy had to deal with during the late 60s, early 70s, early 80s, and including, of course, the uh, American experience, but mainly in Europe, Israel, and uh, uh, the Middle East. Uh, anyway, before I get into that, I would like to uh, present to you the major challenges any government, may it be a democracy or a totalitarian regime, and totalitarian regimes also deal with terrorism. In a different matter, no, but turn, no, but, no, but turn it off. I want to get the. Uh, I want to get. I have a. I have a map of the. I'm not going to see everything here, so uh, it's that. But I want to get the uh, general. Uh, the main menu. Yeah, the main menu of the. Uh, you'll see 12 pictures, because I mean, we're not going to see everything here. Just want to get the the main menu of the of the DVD. You'll see different pictures of Chagavala and others. And then I can start moving. Right. Okay. Don't 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 start. Wait. wait okay. Stop. Leave it as always. Okay. Thank you. Uh, uh, so before we get into uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 unique aspects of religious uh, uh, political violence, because this is the major thing that we are all dealing with, uh, I would like to uh, uh, first of all focus on the major challenges that any government has when it comes to dealing with terrorism. First of all, and above all, the issue of definition. How do we define terrorism? You will not find two countries today around the globe who will have the same definition about terrorism. And of course, the basic question that, that results from this is if we can't define what it is, how are we going to counter it? The US, Israel, France, Russian Federation have different definitions of what terrorism is. I can uh, come to total agreement with President Obama or George W. Bush that Hamas is a terrorist organization, but I'll have a problem with Putin who thinks that Hamas is a wonderful combination of Florence Nightingale, Santa Claus, and Lubavitcher Rabbi Association for the uh, well-being of the international system, and we won't agree about that. He'll call the Chechnyans a bunch of mad, murderous terrorists, but Hamas is not. For example, 
or if you take the differences between the US attitude towards terrorism, I would say since Reagan and on, in comparison to the European attitude, the Europeans look at terrorism for, they looked at terrorism for a very long time as a criminal problem. Therefore, should be dealt with under the criminal code. That's very hard to do. How do you bring Osama bin Laden to justice? How do you bring uh, Imam al-Zawahiri, his second in command, to justice? It's very easy to say, and we are all very legally minded, and it's very precious for any democratic regime, but how do you do it? How do you bring us? You can't bring Osama bin Laden to justice and put him up to, the, put him up to trial. It's not practical. So uh, there are many, many problems that have to do with the definition of what terrorism is. And if we can't agree about what it is, how are we going to deal with it? And ladies and gentlemen, today, when we're dealing with the global jihad networks, and today we really have international terrorist networks, we didn't have that in the 60s and the 70s. Don't confuse tactical cooperation that organizations such as the Palestinian Black September had in the early 70s with the provisional IRA or the bottom line of gang in West Germany. It's not the same kind of cooperation that we see today. If we don't work together, we'll lose this war. And there's no way of dealing with the global jihad networks today if we don't work together. I'll give you a few examples that were very successful. Uh, you all heard about the attempt to blow up 12 US airliners uh, on way from route from Britain to the United States two years ago. If the Pakistani CIA wouldn't have brought that information to the British CIA, which is the MI6, and to the CIA, together with the Mossad, the Israeli intelligence, nobody would have known about this. We'd have another 9-11, even worse than 9-11. So international cooperation is essential. How do you bring everybody to cooperate if people can't agree on what they're dealing with and what they're fighting? So the de and I, I don't promise that I have all the answers. I'm going to give you more problems and question marks today than definite answers. Okay? So the definition is very, very important. How do we define what it is if we want to deal with it? Another aspect is that any type of counterterrorism policy is a political decision. The special units will do what the government will tell them. If it's the American Delta Force, Rangers, 82nd, 101, it's, it's the Israeli Sayeret Matkal, the British SAS, the Russian Alpha Commando Unit. But these units will be operative only after the government has made a political decision on what objectives is it striving to achieve as a result of its counter-terrorist policy. And don't forget that any counter-terrorist policy is a political decision. Because there are a lot of things involved here. For example, the government has to make sure that it has both the motivation and the capabilities of fulfilling the objectives that it decided to achieve. If you don't have the ability, so shut up. If you don't have the motivation, but you do have the ability and you don't want to do it, don't declare that you're going to do something, otherwise you're going to come out very funny with a terrorist organization that is watching every step that you are doing. So what do you want to achieve in your counter-terrorist policy is also very, very important. And above all, it's a political decision. Also financial, how much money are we going to give to this thing? How many uh, articles, essays came out in the US after 9-11 that were dealing with harming American civil rights as a result of 9-11? Not the terrorist attacks, the fact that you have to search your bags, the fact that you have to pay more taxes in the airport, something we're used to in Israel already for more than 45 years. And people were more concerned about that than were concerned about blowing up 30,000 feet in the air. There's a price that a democracy has to pay when it deals with terrorism. And one of the prices that you pay is your own uh, personal well-being in some aspects of being searched in your bags. Uh, you, you go to Israel, every cafe you go in, every mall you go in, then you have a guard searching your bags. It's not to humiliate you or to hurt you, but to make sure that you're not a suicide bomber. 
uh, more airport taxes, things like that. Nobody wants to pay more money, but if you know you want to stay alive, this is something that you have to do. And there are, there are other aspects as well, and I'll, I'll get to it uh, uh, later on. Uh, another dilemma, of course, is the intelligence gathering dilemma. Intelligence gathering with counterterrorism is very different than regular military intelligence gathering. Okay? We have many ways of gathering intelligence when it comes to counterterrorism. There is no substitute to the human aspect. We need the 007 on the ground. And America has learned the hard way, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, how the lack of having human intelligence on the ground was very harmful to the American GIs in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, the, uh, 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 the NSA and all the gadgets in the world cannot replace the old-fashioned spy who is interacting with uh, whoever you want to deal with, and it's very hard today to penetrate the fundamental Muslim groups. It was much easier penetrating the secular groups in the 70s than it is to penetrate the fundamental groups today. And one of the major problems the Western intelligence community has today is how to penetrate and break into these organizations in order to get uh, online uh, intelligence of how to deal with this. Another aspect of intelligence gathering, of course, is everything that falls under what we call SIGNET, okay? Uh, tapping phones, tapping the internet. You're violating civil rights here, aren't you? I'll give you an example from France a few years ago when Chirac was president of France. Uh, the French intelligence learned that most of Al-Qaeda's um, uh, uh, activities in Paris were uh, uh, coordinated through four internet cafes in Paris. Chirac asked permission to tap these internet cafes. There was a total uproar, especially from the left. How can you do this? You're violating civil rights. You want to break into, yes, but breaking into an internet is violating your civil rights. There's no doubt about that. But if Al-Qaeda is, is, is planning his next attack in Paris, Maruda, God knows where, through the internet cafes in Paris. And by the way, 9-11 was planned on the internet. The code was the wedding. The guests were the muscle guys. And uh, uh, the bride and the groom were the pilots. The NSA decoded everything on September 12th, one day afterwards. So you have to break into the internet. You're breaking into the internet. You're violating civil rights. Something that democracies don't like to do. But on the other hand, you want to save people's lives. And this is the ongoing dilemma that you have when it comes to uh, uh, dealing with these things. Another aspect which is crucial, and probably one of the most crucial things, is how do you deter a terrorist organization? How does a country or a nation state the terrorist organization. Because what you would conceive as rational decision-making uh, doesn't mean that they don't have the raison d'etre or the rational decision-making. They do, but it's different than yours. Okay? And what a nation-state has to do when it confronts terrorism, in your case, global jihad al-Qaeda, in our case, Hezbollah, Hamas, global jihad al-Qaeda, all of them, is to try to put yourself in their shoes in order to figure out how they're thinking. The point of departure that also a terrorist organization has some kind of rational decision making of loss and gain. But their loss and gain is not necessarily your loss and gain. For example, take 9-11. Osama knew very well that as a result of 9-11, the entire US army is going to spread all over Afghanistan. Okay? The Al-Qaeda central will basically be shattered. Now they're getting back, they're pulling themselves back together in Pakistan. But he knew that. But from his point of view, hitting America in New York, hitting America in Washington, uh, doubling or tripling the mobilization to Al-Qaeda and many other free benefits he got out of 9-11 were more important than him than keeping Al-Qaeda central. The truth is the biggest achievement of Al-Qaeda until today is not Al-Qaeda central, but the amorphic uh, spider webs that we have all over the world today. For example, the Madrid cell, 2004, the bombings of the Atocha train stations in Madrid. They weren't connected with bin Laden directly. They don't work for bin Laden. This was a self-sufficient uh, uh, North African cell 
of young immigrants in, uh, in Madrid who are watching Al-Qaeda on the television. You can take everything out of the websites and television. There are 45,000 uh, global, sorry, 4,500 global jihad websites in Europe alone, walking universities of terrorism. You can learn anything you want on these things. This is what we call back home an armchair jihadist. He'll sit in front of the TV, he'll pick up whatever he needs, whatever he wants. He wants to make contact with Al-Qaeda Central, he will. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to, he can work on his own. In this case, they worked on their own. The London cell actually uh, originated in Leeds. In July 2005, the second generation of Pakistani immigrants in the UK, born native Britons. They looked at TV, they were hooked up to some Al-Qaeda websites, but they didn't get any help from Al-Qaeda Central, from Pakistan or Afghanistan. We have that kind of model, we have other models uh, uh, as well. But the thing is that when you come to deter a terrorist organization, you've got to figure out what he considers as lost in game, not what you consider as lost in game. I'm going to give you two examples out of the, our, uh, uh, our challenges uh, in Israel uh, regarding Hamas and regarding Hezbollah. In uh, summer 2008, we had the Second Lebanese War as a result of the abduction of two Israeli soldiers, actually killing five Israeli soldiers, soldiers abducting two. We didn't know if they were alive or dead. Eventually, it turned out that they were killed the same day. And uh, uh, Israel got fed up with Hezbollah, and the whole thing just uh, blew up, went out of control. Now, uh, what would be considered as a good deterring achievement on the Israeli side of this case? What would be considered as a good uh, achievement on Hezbollah's side? Two entirely different rationals. From our point of view, we felt bad we didn't wipe out Hezbollah. Although we caused horrific damage to Hezbollah, Hezbollah lost more than 850 of their top best men in southern Lebanon. Uh, uh, from our point of view, the fact that Hezbollah could recuperate after 40 days of fighting, we felt very bad about that. How do they see the whole thing? They were battered badly. But the fact that Nasrallah, Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, could crawl out of the ruins of his bunker and go, na 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 na, I'm still here, from them there was a victory. The fact that we survived, the same thing with Ismail Haniyeh Hamas on Operation Kastler. Hamas doesn't have one standing building today in Gaza after Operation Kastler. And uh, this was also going on for about 42. We got fed up with the rocket shooting, and we decided to put an end to this. We didn't decide to destroy Hamas, but we decided to deter Hamas. And that's why it's been quiet in the past two years. But from a point of view, from Hamas' point of view, the fact that they held on for 40 days, they hardly fought. Most of them ran away. They came out after 40 days of fighting, going out, na 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 na, we're still here. From the terrorist point of view, that's exactly what they had to do. And we didn't like that at all. So I'm giving you these two examples to show you that what you would consider as a gain or a victory uh, is not necessarily what they would consider as a gain of a or a victory. And from a counter-terrorist point of view, you want to make sure that you get your message across the board. So how do you do this? How do you deter a terrorist organization? There are many ways of doing so. Uh, but first of all, don't make any threats that you have no intention to fulfill, because then you lose face in front of a terrorist organization. Uh, I heard a lot of Israeli prime ministers and American presidents threat terrorism from Ronald Reagan uh, and from uh, uh, Bibi Netanyahu and on. And we don't always do everything. We don't always do something that the terrorists are watching. Like this guy is talking and talking and talking and not doing anything, so maybe we don't have to take him that seriously. Well, sometimes it can be a very fatal mistake on the side of the terrorists. Like Saddam Hussein couldn't, didn't understand the American reaction to the invasion of Kuwait, for example. Or that Nasrallah in Lebanon didn't take into consideration how the abduction of two Israeli soldiers would end for him. And by the way, he said two months later, if I would have known that that's how Israel would have reacted, I would have never abducted these two soldiers. And as a result of what he did, by the way, he lost direct command of Hezbollah in Lebanon. He does not have the authority any longer to initiate any clash with Israel. Everything is directed through Iran, through Tehran. 
Why? Because he activated the whole system for the wrong reason. The whole missile deployment in southern Lebanon is to deter Israel from attacking the nuclear facilities in, uh, um, uh, in Iraq. And he activated the whole thing for what? For abducting two Israeli soldiers and killing five? Uh, the Iranians wanted to kill them. It was for the wrong reason, for the wrong objective. So uh, uh, um, both sides have to think what the other side is doing if you really want to uh, uh, gain something. Of course, from a terrorist point of view, take the suicide bombings during the Second Intifada from 2000-2002. 1,250 Israelis were blown up by suicide bombings. Now, from a Palestinian point of view, blowing up buses in Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, Haifa, in the end of the day, what did it give them? Nothing. Okay? But from their point of view, the fact that I live in Jerusalem, for example, I live in a neighborhood called the French Hill. We had 12 suicide bombings in the junction beneath our neighborhood. And I remember very well uh, this period. And we had two kids in high school in those days. And we had to drive them. We didn't let them go on buses. We drove them around all the time. And people were afraid. Listen, it's, it's, you'll see how it looks in a few minutes. You'll understand what I'm talking about. Uh, and from their point of view, this was very successful. The fact that people weren't going to cafes or going uh, on business in the central part of Jerusalem and Tel Aviv was a great achievement from their point of view. The fact that they, get, that they got battered and their whole infrastructure was destroyed didn't matter for them. For them, the major thing was to scare the shit out of the Israelis, and they succeeded to do so. So again and again and again, when you talk about deterring and counter-deterring, what you might consider as a successful policy might be a total failure in the eyes of the other side, and of course, the other way around. And I would say that deterrence is probably one of the most important aspects of any counter-terrorist uh, uh, policy. Uh, the other aspect, of course, is either defensive or offensive measures taken by a country who is threatened by terrorism or has to deal with terrorism. Uh, the truth is that about 65 to 70% of any country's effort goes more on the defensive, including Israel, by the way, it might surprise you, than on the offensive. Uh, uh, what can be defensive measures, uh, roadblocks, inspections, uh, 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 searching your personal bags when you walk into the mall, whatever, okay? Most of the energies goes on that. But of course you have the offensive measures as well, something that is very unpopular in many countries, for example, targeted killings. Now, targeted killings can be very efficient, they can be uh, very destructive, it all depends, of course, who you're killing and why you're killing and when you're killing. The real objective of a targeted killing, which is used both by Israel and uh, the American Armed Forces today in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Iraq, is to destroy the chain of command of the other side and to prevent a next terrorist attack. Just as simple as that. If the guy's dead, he won't come and blow himself up in Berlin, New York, Washington, or any other place, but it's much more than that. The moment that you succeed to unstable the chain of command of the organization, that's usually what the major reason target killings tries to achieve. Uh, you put the terrorist organization on the run. They're more busy watching their backs and planning attacks to kill Americans, Israelis, or God knows what. On the other hand, uh, 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 if, if you kill the wrong person or cause a lot of collateral damage, you can pay a very heavy price. I'll give you an example from Israel. In 2002, uh, 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 Israel was looking for a guy called Salah Shkhadeh. Salah Shkhadeh was the commander of the military branch of Hamas. He's a Din al-Qassam in Gaza. Directly responsible for the death of more than 500 Israelis. A very, very brilliant, talented uh, terrorist and commander. And it was decided to take him out. And the problem was, was to get him in the right time, the right place. He was very cautious, very careful. Finally, he comes home on Friday night, goes to sleep. And for the first time, was decided to use an F-16 bomb, not a limited Hellfire missile or pinpoint uh, sniper or something like that. And the result of this was that Salah Shkhadeh was killed, but 18 people were killed together with him, including women and children. And that, of course, looked very bad in the eyes of everybody. I don't know if you know how the pirate killings are going on in Iraq, Afghanistan, or uh, Pakistan, 
but uh, uh, most of the uh, target killing, killings today are done by drones or by airplanes. And uh, if you know that certain guys coming to a wedding or God knows what, a bomb is dropped, maybe a ton or half a ton or whatever, a lot of people get killed, a lot of the wrong people as well, but also the guy that you want to get gets killed as well. Worth it, not worth it? The question is, of course, who you're looking for and why are you trying uh, to get him. I'll give you an example of a successful target of killing that was done by Israel in 1997. The commander of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, a guy called Fatih uh, uh left his hiding place in Damascus for a shopping tour in Valletta, Malta. According to foreign sources, the Mossad got him in Malta and killed him. This paralyzed the Palestinian Islamic Jihad for five years. So, worth it, of course, it's worth it, because the Palestinian Islamic Jihad was one of the most worst murderous organizations we had to do. A lot of Israelis got killed from suicide bombings by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. It was a small organization. You take the head off, the organization is paralyzed for five years. Uh, I don't know if you know this, by the way, but uh, uh, President Obama, as you all know, is the Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Armed Forces, has doubled the number of target killings since George W. Bush. How many of you know this, by the way? Be honest with you. You don't. He's doubled the number of target And by the way, I'm not criticizing him about this. What really drives me crazy is why do we get all the criticism America doesn't get any criticism about this? He has doubled the target killings in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Pakistan. And because he found it very efficient uh, to do so. Uh, uh, anyway, so uh, again, target killings can be can work for you, can work against you. Uh, up till now, they have proven themselves to be probably one of the most efficient uh, 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 tools uh, to use against terrorist organizations, especially when you don't want to go to a you don't want to wipe Gaza off the map, you don't want to wipe Pakistan off the map. But if you want to get the guys that are doing the trouble, you have to stop them before they get to you. It's just as simple as that. With democracy, without democracy, you're trying to save lives. Don't forget that. Uh, now, uh, after we, uh, maybe a few more things before we get to the democracies themselves, the kind of punitive measurements that you can use against terrorists, it's very problematic today. Since terrorism is not defined by the international court in The Hague, and it's no coincidence, by the way, because nobody wants to deal with this because it's so heavily charged politically, my terrorist, your freedom fighter, the other way around, there isn't a clear legal definition of what a terrorist is. And uh, therefore, if we do not have the proper judicial system to deal with it, how are we going to bring them to court? And Americans love to bring people to court and bring them to justice. But we're not in the Wild West here. Okay? As I said, how do you bring Osama to justice? If you don't have a proper geared judicial system that will deal with the phenomena of terrorism, you're lost here. All the international legal system that deals with war crimes today, etc., 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 was reformed and reorganized after World War II. But World War II was a war between nation states, a conventional war between nation states. We're dealing with organizations today who don't play according to the rules. They'll kill innocent people, and they'll do whatever they want, and they really challenge it. Well, how, how do we cope with this? What do we do with this? Uh, uh, you brought up the uh, uh, issue of torturing, which is a very sensitive issue. You brought Aharon Barak's uh, example. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, we have the phenomenon of a ticking bomb. You catch somebody, we have this, and you have this, more, more than you know, by the way, of people who have very valuable information that save a lot of hundreds of thousands of lives in America, or in Israel, or what do you do with them? He doesn't want to talk. So what, what are you going to wait until 5,000 people get killed? You smack them around, you try to get out the information. I saw it sounds horrible, maybe, but, but this is how it works. And by the way, I want you to relax, and I want you to know, by the way, the professional interrogators rarely use force. I want to give you an example that the Americans did in Afghanistan uh, not a long time ago. Uh, about a, I would say, a group of a couple of dozens of uh, suspects of Taliban and Al-Qaeda who gathered up. And uh, uh, most of them were not important uh, uh, operatives, but some of them were. 
And the thing was how to get information out of them. And these guys wouldn't talk. They didn't want to collaborate. They didn't want to talk or share information or anything. So what the American interrogators did was something uh, they said that you don't want to talk. Okay, we are sending all of you today back to your countries of origin. Go back to Algeria, go back to Egypt, go back to Jordan, and let them take care of you. Two hours afterwards, everybody came rushing down, begging the American military personnel not to send them back to Algeria, not to send them back to Morocco, not to send them back, and they told, they told them whatever they wanted to hear. And some terrorist attacks were prevented in the United States. And there were a lot of attempts, by the way, since 9-11 to hit America, some of them you know about, some of them you don't know about. So uh, uh, the whole issue of using physical force, which is a very problematic issue when it comes to a democracy, uh, has two sides to the coin, okay? In most cases, physical force, by the way, is not used. You see it in more movies than you see it in reality. Uh, there was a very good movie done here three or four years ago with Meryl Streep. What was the name of the movie? Redundance? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Meryl Streep plays a tough CIA, uh, 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 I don't want to use the word bitch because I love Meryl Streep as an actor, but uh, uh, she's a tough, she, she does these things. She's actually uh, looking for a country. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, how many of you have seen this movie? They should see this movie because this really puts the problem. What are you doing? Well, of course, in this Hollywood version, they kind of. Extraordinary rendition. Right, so that's, the, that's the, the true code name that is used, by the way, uh, because uh, what happened was that uh, what do you do with all these kind of Taliban sources? You can't interrogate them in the United States because of the limitations. You have to get valuable information out of them. So instead of interrogating them in the United States, you can interrogate them in Egypt and Morocco, Turkey, places like that where. You know, uh, you have a larger uh, uh, margins of, uh, of, of interpretation of what can be done and not can be done, and sometimes hard things, to get out the valuable information. What do you think Guantanamo is all about at the end of the day? And why don't you think Obama has closed down? He will not shut down Guantanamo. Okay, he promised in his elections he's going to shut down Guantanamo. Guantanamo is still alive and kicking, right? Guantanamo is the American solution to some of these problems. Because he wants to get out of information out of this in order to save lives. Now, some of the people are innocent, some of the people have nothing to do with it, and innocent people fall between the tables, that's true. But don't forget again, you're fighting against organizations who don't play court. When it comes to a democracy in the end of the day, uh, I would say that the major challenge any democracy has, and it has to do with terrorism, is the unbearable, polarized split. You know, like you do in ballet, girls can do it, you can't do it, okay? And on one hand, you want to preserve your ethical self-image, your morality, and, I, and I'm not underestimating these things that are extremely important to any democracy. You don't want to lose it, but on the other hand, don't forget that the primary task of winning any democracy is to preserve and guard the lives of its own citizens. And this is the constant tension that any democracy has to deal with when it comes to terrorism. So the example brought here by Justice Abu Barak was that during the Second Intifada, the whole issue of torturing Palestinian terrorists came up. And then the Israeli Supreme Court ruled that in the case of what we call a ticking bomb, somebody that we know who knows, and if you don't take that information out, people are going to get killed, you're allowed to smack them around, you're allowed to, in Hebrew it's called kikulim, which actually means you can shake him very badly, but you can't torture him or do any other things uh, as well. And uh, uh, this problem was also raised over here more than once. The Germans dealt with it, the French, the British had a, a very uh, important committee in the early 80s dealing with the provisional IRA. And believe me, what the British did in Northern Ireland goes beyond anything that America and Israel ever did in the Middle East. Just go back in history and see how the British dealt with the, uh, with the provisional IRA. All democracies have dealt with this problem. 
And everybody's caught up in this tension between wanting to preserve your democratic, ethical self-image on one hand, but also preserve the lives of your citizens on the other. What would you would have done if you were not Muhammad Atta, Marwan al-Shafi, Hani Khanjur, or Ziyad Jana, the four pilots of 9-11, 24 hours before 9-11? And you know that something, and by the way, everybody knew that something's coming down, but nobody knew exactly where, but the 12 American intelligence agencies knew that something was going to happen, and it's a plane operation. But nobody could pinpoint exactly where and when. So let's say you got one of the four pilots. And you know that something's coming. What are you going to do with him? Give him Tootsie Rolls. And you, got, and you can save 3,000 lives. 3,000 people were killed as a terrorist attack. I'm not giving you any answers. I want you to think about the harsh difficulties of the real world when it comes to deal with these things. It's very easy to talk about moralities when you're sitting in a classroom, but when you go out in the field and have to deal with the result of failing to stop these attacks, you have a small, not a small, you have a big example here in 9-11, but we've been living through this reality for more than 45 years. Here I want to get to another thing which I think is very important, that what, what are we conjuring today? Uh, the biggest change that uh, we have witnessed in the past four decades concerning the use of political violence, in my humble opinion, is the transition from the secular political violent agenda to the religious political violent agenda. Something totally different than what we've known up to now. On the morning of 9-11, despite the repetitive attempts of the American air controllers to hail the four hijackers, there was no reply on the radio. Nothing. Total silence. Uh, that day I was standing in the Israeli <coughs> foreign office, I was watching television, and we saw the whole attack on TV. And I remember the first thing that struck me when the building started to fall down after the attack in the Pentagon and the World Trade Center was not so much the noises, but the sound of silence. And unfortunately, not the sound of silence of Simon and Garfunkel. And by the way, ironically, if you ever paid attention to the words of that song, they talk about, that belongs to our generation, the solitude of the individual in the great city. And you'll think about the solitude of the 3,000 victims on that day. Uh, there's no answer on the radio, and this struck me immediately because I'm used to the kind of hidden bargain terrorists we had in Israel during the 70s and early 80s, where terrorists never stopped talking. They came, and no matter how crazy the situation was or how violent it was, the head of the group came with a megaphone. He never stopped talking. He declared himself as a whatever, uh, and released the prisoners and gave, and gave a list of inmates in prison. That's how the IRA worked. That's how the Red Brigades in Italy did. That's how everybody worked in the 70s, okay? So there was a dialogue going on. Terrorists wanted something and they came to negotiate and there was a crazy dialogue going on. These guys don't want to talk. They're not talking to anybody. The only recordings we have is from Muhammad Atta, the ringleader, trying to calm down the American passengers. It's a regular hijacking. The same thing with Ziad Jama, who crashed later on in Shanghai, Pennsylvania. But no communication with the Taliban. In order to understand why these guys are not talking, I want to show you the major characteristics of secular <coughs> Between 1945 and 1979, from the aftermath of World War II until the Islamic Revolution in Iran, we can see three major prototypes of guerrilla-slash-terrorist organizations operating around the world from Southeast Asia, through the Middle East, Black Africa, Maghreb, Western Europe, Latin America. A, the anti-colonial groups. B, separatist autonomous groups. Three, social economic revolutionary groups, usually affiliated with radical left ideologies. Going back to A, anti-colonial groups, the FLN in Algeria against the French, fought the Gracia Nacional. The Mao Mao, led by Joma Kenyatta in East Africa against the British. The first Vietnam War against the French, 45-54, the Viet Minh led by Ho Chi Minh, followed later on by uh, 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 the Viet Cong against the Americans. 
What were the objectives of the anti-colonial rules? A, get out there, get, get rid of the occupier, mostly the French and the British. B, gain independence. C, install the government, may it be right or left, doesn't really matter. D, which I think is the most important thing, and listen to this very carefully, later on when we compare this to the religious group, let's go back to business as usual with yesterday's flow as fast as possible. In other words, when you look at the secular conflicts, they have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Let's take Algeria, probably the most ferocious anti-colonial campaign, horrific war crimes on both sides. The war began in 54, ended in July 1962. Six months after the war is over, the French government, led by Charles de Gaulle, offers the Revolutionary Council in Algeria a grant of 250 million francs. It's an enormous amount of money in the early 60s, much more than what the Chinese and the Russians were able to give to the Algerians. Why? Because everybody wanted to put the war in the background. It's time to meet again. The separatist autonomous groups, the two best examples I can give you, which are probably well known to both, to all of you, the Provost, the Provisional IRA in Northern Ireland, and Etta in the Basque Land of Spain. Now, they're very different than the anti-colonial groups because they're not fighting in the struggle. So, it's usually a very complicated internal situation, not always having a very clear agenda. But despite the horrific violence inflicted by the Provisional IRA or by ETA, it was never the objective of the Provisional IRA to completely destroy the United Kingdom. No more than the FLN in Algeria wanted to blow up Paris. Because the definition of the enemy is very limited. Therefore, your strategies and tactics will go accordingly. If you take the social economic revolutionaries uh, affiliated with radical left, for example, the Tupamaros in Uruguay in the mid-60s in Latin America, the Montoneros or the Europe in Argentina, Shining Path in Peru, later on had a very strong influence on radical left organizations like the Bader Meinhof Gang in West Germany or the Brigata Rosa, the Red Brigades in Italy or Acción Direct in France. These are the closest things to the religious groups that we know today because they also had a very wide global vision either uh, Cuban, Soviet, or Chinese Marxism, all workers in the world be like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They were never anywhere close to that, but at least ideologically they have that. When we talk about the social economic revolutionaries, in most cases we're talking about a civil war. Uh, anybody here from Argentina, Chile, any, anywhere around Latin America, any Latin Americans? Okay, where from? Costa Rica. Costa Rica, so you guys were quite, uh, you were out of this most of the time. Uh, but uh, uh, my wife's Argentinian, so I'm, you know, I'm connected to Latin America. But when you look at the, uh, at the Latin American model, it usually ended as a civil war. You take the typical split in Latin America between church, army, uh, right wing, upper middle class on one hand, radical left on the other side. You take the Argentinian example, the Guerra Sucia, the dirty war in Argentina, of the generals between 1973 to 1976. Uh, the same thing with Pinochet in Chile. 76, uh, what, what? I'm sorry, 76, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, right. Uh, 76, 79, and uh, Pinochet in Chile, and of course what happened in Brazil. At the end of the day, uh, the terrorists lost, and that was the end of the story. The same thing with the Badawana from the radical left groups in uh, Europe. They never really got any uh, serious public support. And finally, the counter-terrorists within the governments uh, wiped them out. What is the common denominator to all these groups? At the end of the day, they all had a secular, social, economic agenda. So what? Many of my colleagues who deal with consequences say, look, Jonathan, what does it really matter what a Paris believes in? What do I care if you believe in Karl Marx, Mao Zedong, Jesus, God, or uh, Jehovah, or, uh, or, or Muhammad? You tell me what he does. I'll tell you how to get rid of him. That's the end of the story. Ladies and gentlemen, don't do the same mistake a lot of my Western colleagues who never underestimate ideologies, neither with the secular or the religious Tell people who believe in what they're doing. And they should be taken very seriously because they say what they mean and they mean what they say, especially when it comes to the religious agenda. 
And uh, uh, when I started inspecting the secular groups of the book I'm writing out to be published in the U.S. in about a year, uh, uh, I asked myself on the ideological level, before I dealt with strategies and tactics, how do they define their enemy? In other words, show me how a terrorist organization or a nation state defines their enemies, and then I'll tell you what the strategies and tactics are. It'll be much easier to figure it out. Because if the limited objective of the FLN uh, is to get rid of French occupation in the hospital of Algeria, it doesn't mean they want to wipe off French civilization. It's not the French civilization that is the enemy of the Algerians. It's the French settlers and occupation in Algeria. So it's a very limited objective. The more limited the definition of the enemy is, the more limited your strategies and tactics will be. I'll give you another example. Probably the most radical uh, uh, left uh, anti-American uh, entity in Latin America during the 60s, before his execution in Bolivia, October 1967, was our dear friend Ernesto Che Guevara. Okay? I'm not part of the myth festival of Ernesto Che Guevara, so don't try to drag me into this. Guevara had very interesting sides. He also had very strong pathological, almost sick, as sick aspects as well. I can highly recommend you to read Lee Anderson's biography, Che Guevara, Revolutionary Life. It's the best biography written on Che. There are 18 biographies on Che. Lee Anderson is an American journalist, an expert on guerrilla movements. Uh, Lee Anderson, Lee Anderson, Che Guevara, Revolutionary Life. Book came out in 2004, I think. Uh, Lee is a very pro-Che guy, but he's not trying to hide the pathological and very dark sides of Che Guevara as well. You know, the joke says that Che is still living in Latin well in Bolivia, making t-shirts, $10 a piece, selling the barrettes and $15 a piece. Never, I don't want to get into a Che Guevara festival. Every time you start with Che, you never end with this. But the interesting thing about Che, the, why, why am I bringing him here? He hated America for the cash. But when you read his speeches against America, he does not hate the American society, the American civilization. He is criticizing the American policy, the American economy. And what struck me when I compared all the secular agenda groups was that the enemy is either defined by the political regime it represents, for example, the anti-imperialist or Zionist entity, etc., or the social economic ideology the enemy represents, capitalist case, versus Marxism, etc., etc., etc. But it was never a civilization. It was never an entire culture. Even in the case of Chen, we hated America with a deep passion. When you get to the religious sphere, you're in an entirely different community. You have to reset your minds and wake up. Because the definition of the enemy with the radical fundamental groups, may they be Jews, Christians, or Muslims, you're talking of populism. You're talking about the end of days. You're talking about something else. The, 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 the image of the enemy is upgraded, multiplied hundreds and hundreds of times. A lot of these people go with two uh, sets of clocks. They have the earthly clock and they have the heavenly clock. They always know what time it is, everything blows up. And the definition of the enemy, if you define your enemy as a civilization, then think about the kind of strategies and tactics you would use in order to avoid civilization. When it comes to the fundamental Muslims, which I'm sorry, but the fundamental Sunnis and the fundamental Shiites, I'm not talking about mainstream Islam now. I'm not talking about mainstream Judaism, I'm not talking about mainstream Christianity. But when you get into that, you have an entire different understanding of who or what the enemy is. And that makes things very complicated to deal with when it comes to counterterrorism. Uh, now, uh, uh, according to my humble understanding, the West is very interesting. I've been talking about these issues in the past 15 years all over the world, Latin America, U.S., Europe, Russian Federation, you know. 
And one of the things that struck me was a lot of my Western colleagues do not understand the full significance of this phenomenon. When you ask the average uh, Western scholar what are the causes for the comeback of political, violent, religion uh, activities, uh, they will come up with the four following answers. A, the disintegration of the USSR. B, as a result of that, uh, ideological vacuum was created. And among other commodities, religion set forward to offer this itself as a C, globalization. D, the weakening of secular authorities. Now, all these four answers have a certain amount of truth. But they're missing one very essential thing when it comes down to religion. And that is the internal power of religion. Religion from the inside. And again, I'm talking about the dark side of the moon of religion now, not the positive side. Okay? Personally, I have a lot of faith in religion. I'm a conservative rabbi. Okay? I know Judaism very well. I know Christianity very well. I know Islam very well. And I have lovely friends who are imams, pastors, and humana. But we're not talking about the nice sides. We're talking about the dark side of the moon concerning the, uh, this phenomenon. And when you get into the internal aspects of religion, uh, it gives you a much better understanding of what's going on. Uh, for example, uh, when I asked my students how would they define Eagle Amir. Eagle Amir assassinated Prime Minister Rubin in 1995. He was a radical right-wing religious nationalist. True. That doesn't say anything about how this guy studied Jewish sources, how he manipulated certain parts of the Babylonian Talmud. You have to read the same things these people are reading if you want to understand how they arrived to the conclusions that they arrived, and also later on, execute it into policy or go out and kill people. How does Jerry Fallon, I hope I'm not stepping on anybody, no, no, no offense meant to anybody, but I, I, I want to give you the professional aspect of this, or Christian identity groups, whatever. Let's take Jerry Fallon because everybody knows, a brilliant theologian, passed away two years ago. How does he explain 9-11? Do you remember? He has a very interesting judgment of God on the immorality of our culture. All right, but specifically what? How do we, he had a much stronger, uh, I'm calling Jerry Fowler. He had enough problems with happy homosexuals, uh, yeah, the way he put it, okay? This is what Jerry Fowler said. Just like God sent the Rupert Nexer, king of Babylon, to wipe out the first temple in Judea in 586 BC, God sent Al-Qaeda to strike in the heart of America, in New York and Washington. How many people got killed in my living? Three thousand, right? Probably more than three. There are three million American women who are born every year. And each women the now, I'm not getting into the logic, and we have enough power topics back home. I'm not getting into your, uh, your, 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 your uh, collision here with abortion. That's not the issue. That's not my meaning this thing. I think the interesting thing for me to say when I was studying Christian fundamentalism is to understand how he arrives to these conclusions from the text, from the New Testament, from Titus and Christ, from St. Augustine, whatever. Because this is what all of us the problem is with fundamental Jews, fundamental Christians, fundamental Muslims. Yes. Everybody goes back to the past as a source of authority, and everybody goes back to the text as evolved in Jewish and Islam. But then somewhere they get lost, because somewhere they have to adopt the text or the meaning of the text to their political agenda. You all know the famous scene in John where Jesus goes into the temple and turns over the tables and yells and screams and all. You know what I'm talking about, okay? Good Christians here. <laughs> anyway, a very known scene from the New Testament. And I challenge you to go into thousands of Protestant Catholic websites. You can do it today. And see trillion interpretations to what did Jesus really do in the Nobody really knows. Okay? 
Okay, but it doesn't really matter. Those who want to militant Jesus, and I, I, I swear to God, I'm quoting you, trust me as a rabbi, Jesus came in with a baseball bat and opened heads and broke bones on left and right. Okay, if you're on the moral, I would say the society of Bishop Overcom, Kumbaya, my Lord, Michael, 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 Jesus only spoke to them gently, maybe raised his lip, but he never used a baseball bat. It really doesn't matter. What I'm trying to show you is how these things depend very much on interpretation. If you don't think the source, you know how these things work. When it comes to fundamental Islam, it's inevitable. Because there isn't one for it in the Islam. And when you deal with fundamental Sunnis or fundamental Shiites, let's take Ayatollah Khomeini, for example, in Iran. According to Shiite theology, you are not allowed to declare jihad before the coming of the Messiah, the Mahabi. Comes Ayatollah Khomeini, a brilliant theologian, charismatic, and very shrewd, very well versed in the Sharia in Muslim law, and takes the entire thing and twists it 180 degrees. And only somebody like him can do that, or the Pope. And he invents a new theology where he says, I can't declare jihad before the coming of the Mahani. That's what they do. And I can bring you a lot of examples of how these things are done. The bottom line, from an academic and from an intelligence operative point of view, we have to pay attention to how these people think, how they work. Therefore, it's not enough to come with models of international relations and political science, but when I come both from the humanities and the social science. How do I respect the models and things until a certain point? The human behavior is unpredictable at the end of the day. Okay? If you want to understand these people, you also have to read the text. You have to get into the materials. You have to understand what's going on in their own minds and in their own religious world if you want to figure out what you're dealing with. Uh, uh, many people avoid this. And there's another process, also another aspect here is a lot of people try to avoid this because uh, uh, they don't have the language proficiency. Another uh, uh, professional advice I can give all of you if you're interested in getting into these things, alongside your regular academic studies, languages, languages, languages. And don't tell me the American students can't learn languages, okay? I have a lot of American students in Israel, I have a lot of American students around. You can learn Arabic, you can learn Urdu, you can learn Parsi, you can learn Hebrew, and you can learn these languages. Trying to get a good job for the American government, start learning these models. We'll help you more than theories and models, believe me. And, uh, uh, but this is the way to understand the culture, the mentality, and whatever is going on when you deal with these folks. Now, uh, uh, having said that, of course, uh, there were violent phenomena, both by radical Jews and radical Christians. We had the Jewish underground Israel here, we had the Temple Mosque, we had uh, the Army of God here in the United States that killed the uh, colonists, both abortion clinics in Florida. But in the end of the day, you can't compare it to what's happening in the Muslim world. So the question is why? What's happening in the Muslim world today? Uh, with the limited time that I have, I would say this. Portrait yourself, Islam is a long track. Where the locomotive is trying to dash into the 21st century, 160 miles an hour. Who's driving the locomotive? Madhav, Arab, and Muslim leaders like Mubarak and Egypt, Abdallah and Jordan, the Maghreb leaders. Uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, they, they might not be pro-Obama, pro-Bush, or pro-Israel, but uh, uh, they're definitely not pro-Al-Qaeda Taliban. They're actually trying to fight the same people, the same organizations we're trying to do. The problem is that in the same trade, in the caboose at the same time, we have the Kardawis, the Haniyas, the Bin Ladens, the Khomeinis who are pushing down the brakes with all their power. Therefore, the trade, instead of speeding 160 miles an hour into the future, is staggering 75 miles. What you're witnessing today in the Muslim world is not a clash of civilizations yet, according to Samuel Huntington. We're not there yet. We might reach that point. But what we're seeing today is an internal, an enormous internal clash in tug of war inside Islam. And how this tug of war will end 
depends very much uh, not only on how the moderate Muslim forces, which are still a majority in the Muslim and Arab world, deal with it, but also how the West helps them to deal with this. And I can point out four major question marks, or I would say uh, uh, processes that are now taking place that will determine what world we're going to be living in the next three or four years. A, how will the war in Afghanistan end? B, will Iran have the bomb? C, what happens when Hezbollah takes over Lebanon? Wait another day or two. Four, where's Turkey going? All of these ifs have to do with fundamental Islam and religious issues. Let's take Afghanistan for a moment. Excuse me for my language for a moment. Nobody gives a damn about Afghanistan. The issue is why it was never Afghanistan. The major concern is Pakistan. 168 million people, 165 nuclear warheads. What Al-Qaeda and Taliban have been trying to do in the past four years is to steer the civil war inside Pakistan. A very fragile, heterogeneous society. If things fall apart there, and these guys gain control of the nukes, we're living in a life. We're living in a very, very insane, serious life. And we don't know how this thing is going to end. America cannot deal with Afghanistan, Pakistan all alone. That's why I come and complain thoroughly to my European colleagues. They're sitting on their butts doing nothing. And they're the ones, by the way, who have to deal with a lot of these problems much sooner than you will here over here. Iran and the bomb. Why is Iran striving for a bomb? Because this is the only insurance policy the regime has left. The revolution is a miserable failure. The social economic situation there is much worse than it was during the last days of the shock. And uh, if they'll get the bomb, they feel safe. Now, are they going to drop the bomb on Tel Aviv tomorrow? I'm telling you, as a former uh, arms control expert, I don't know. They know they'll be wiped out in this They don't want to be wiped out. So, what's the game? You have a wonderful role model. And the role model, ladies and gentlemen, is in Southeast Asia, the fourth program. Insane, crazy? Yes, they're playing the moon tunes of the neighborhood. They're not crazy. They're brilliant. They're driving everybody crazy. Look at them. This new guy that models are the new kid. Looks like a marshmallow. <coughs> really driving uh, everybody mad. They got four or five, four or five nuclear warnings in Jersey. That's all. Two for Tokyo, three for Seoul, and the other way around. Have any way you want. Nobody tries to screw <coughs> They sunk the Korean ship when was it six, seven months ago? They bombed the island what was it, a month and a half ago, killed a few. Everybody made the movies, but nobody really did anything about that. That's what we are afraid. Not only we, the Saudis, the Egyptians, the Persian Gulf States, everybody. If there was one good thing that came out of WikiLeaks, is to show you what is really happening. Who are the real enemies? Who are the real threats in the eyes of the monsters? Everybody's terrified to walk into the job Iran. They're begging America to bomb the hell out of Iran. They're begging us to bomb. You have no idea what's really going on. They're begging us to bomb the hell out of Iran. They're terrified from Iran with the bomb. Because Iran with the bomb, two and a half bombs, three and a half bombs, is going to drive everybody crazy. Take us, for example, any future collision with Hamas, and there will be future collisions with Hamas, and Hezbollah will be under an Iranian nuclear umbrella. Think about it. Think about the regional implication, the global implication, the threat to Europe, to Russia, and of course, uh, what will happen with us in this uh, uh, constellation. The fourth if is Turkey. Where's Turkey going? Well, <coughs> things don't look very good, I must admit. Okay? 
Gregor has been in power for about seven years, and I would like to argue as long as the economy works, he's one of the very honest. And he is pulling Turkey to a fundamental Sunni Islam. A little bit different flavor than Iran, not exactly the same thing, but it doesn't look very well. And uh, uh, we're talking about 80 million Turks. Now I have to students. Those who come from the middle class and the second have nothing to do with this. It's a tragedy to do with what's happening in Turkey today. And Turkey was a very uh, uh, moderate, balanced force in the Middle East for a very long time. Don't forget they were the only Muslim state that was admitted to NATO in the early 50s. And now they're losing this. They're finished with Europe, by the way. There's no way that the Germans or the French are ever going to let them integrate in Europe. And uh, this makes them more dangerous and frustrated as they are now, especially because of Erdogan and his government. And I don't know where this is leading or where this is headed. So uh, a lot of the answers to this will determine what will happen in the next four or five years. In the region, coming back to Hezbollah, you all know that the Rafiq Hariri report has to come out very soon. Rafiq Hariri was the Lebanese Prime Minister who was assassinated three years ago. All the fingers are pointed to Hezbollah, but point two and a half fingers to Syria and Iran as well. Hezbollah was contracting, Hezbollah was not working the role. And uh, uh, everything can blow up in Lebanon. And usually when they want to ventilate something, they do it with us. And I can guarantee you one thing, we will not repeat the same mistakes we did in 2006. We will not tolerate missile shooting in Israel anymore. We're sick and tired and fed up with this above our heads. Hezbollah today has 45,000 missiles deployed from the Yutani River down to the south. This is much more than what all NATO has together. You're not talking about a small terrorist organization. You're talking about an organization that's basically an Iranian commando division that has 45,000 short, medium, long-range missiles. What would you do? If Alabama would become the Islamic Republic and blow up uh, Afghanistan or Georgia, what would you expect our forces to do? The same thing goes with Hamas. The tragedy of Hamas in many ways, talking about the religious agenda with the Palestinians, is that Hamas is an offshoot of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, but at the same time also contracting for Iran. What free benefit on earth would come up to this for the Palestinians? So uh, 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 we'll have to see. Closing the circle back with counterterrorism, uh, uh, comparing the secular to the religious agenda. Dealing with the secular agenda, we had something we don't have today with the religious groups. We knew that they wanted to come back alive. They were not suicidal. Do not confuse suicide with motivation for sacrifice. Also, American GIs had motivation for sacrifice. Also, IDF soldiers had. We've seen this in combat. We've seen this all around the world. It's not the same thing as blowing yourself up or going on a suicide mission. And uh, 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 the fact that these guys wanted to come back alive gave us something very valuable in the 70s and 80s, something we don't have today, time. It gave the government time to figure out if it wants a military option or real negotiations. Sometimes you don't have any military options, so you have to negotiate. You can avoid negotiation, drive the terrorists crazy, prepare the commandos, study the building, the airplane, the bus, whatever. And when you're ready to break in, kill the terrorists, get the hostages out, and not to give in, if you can't negotiate and give up. This is called hit and bargain operations. That one was that was, was going on during the 70s and the early 80s. When you deal with suicide bombers, these guys don't come to talk or initiate the dialogue like time alone. They come to kill Terry. The moment that the suicide bomber has entered the target zone, you're finished. There's nothing you can do but collect whatever is left and bury it. And that's it. That is why, as far as counterterrorism is concerned with the religious agenda, the only thing you can do is to preempt. That is why Obama has doubled the number of target killings in Afghanistan and Iraq 
in Pakistan because the only way to stop this is to prevent it from coming wherever they want it to go. For example, the last example was the uh, uh, last uh, thing was uh, the plan to uh, attack uh, the German parliament in Berlin. And uh, it was avoided by killing and targeting eight of the members of the group who wanted to go and buy, buy American drones in Pakistan. They located the trading camp, they killed most of them. That was the end of the story. And uh, uh, as far as dealing with suicide bombers, this is the only thing you can do. Because if you don't stop them before they come to the target zone, you lost. Just as simple as that. Cruel and simple. Now, do I have two minutes to show something here? <laughs> it just depends on the time. Uh, I'm, are we in a hurry? I'm not in a hurry. I got no, a few. You guys have a few? Right. It depends on whether you want to have some time for discussion and Q&A. All right. So I just want to give, please, I've got to make a very, very hard decision to show you with something. Uh, um, you know what? I'll take two things which are not very easy to watch, but I've been, since we're talking about counterterrorism, it's important. Uh, I want to show you this. Now, if anybody wants to walk off, please feel free to walk off for two minutes and come back. I want to show you what I'm going to show you. Uh, in order to understand what suicide bombing is, I want to show you this picture, this little uh, thing over here. This is a 10-year-old Palestinian kid who was paid 150 shekels, which is the equivalent of what, of, uh, $30, $40, uh, to blow himself up on this rather roadblock by the passing of Salah Jihad. Luckily, the soldiers uh, uh, discovered the suicide belt, so I want you to see exactly how, uh, how it looks. Everybody's been very critical about us because we built the fence, we built the wall, we've done all kinds of things in order to prevent them from coming in. A lot of people don't take into consideration what happens when they succeed to come in and what is the outcome of what happens when they do come in. So, uh, 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 you know, what we'll do is we'll, uh, uh, we'll start with this, and then I want to show you something that you don't see on the CNN or the BBC. Every time a suicide bombing attack takes place in Israel, the pathological department of Israeli police goes in with a camera and just films whatever is going on there. And it dawned on me when I started talking about these issues that many people just don't understand what this is all about. And the only way to explain people what this is all about is to see exactly how it looks. So and first I want to watch this thing, and then of course anybody wants to walk out before, this is not an easy thing to watch, you want to walk out for a few minutes, feel completely free, it's okay. It's not fair to warn you in advance these are hard things to watch, okay? So I'm going to start with this uh, kid over here. Uh, how do I, uh, where's my mouse here? Is the mouse working? No. How do I? You know, it, it's going through the DVD player, not the, so how do I, how do I, I, I don't know. I got to move from there down here. Let me try this. No, it, it, well, I'm afraid I don't know how to work it. I know, I got no, but I got to move from here. I got to move from Sugar Hill. What? Yeah. what? <laughs> it's going to play the wrong screen. No, that's true. I don't want to see Sugar Hill. <laughs> you see, whatever you do, you find yourself with Sugar Hill. You can skip forward, you can just skip forward down to it. Yeah, that's true. pictures, all the four pictures there. Yeah, in the meantime, uh, <laughs> 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 
No, but now we're, we're getting to the right. I want to the right. I don't know how to get the menu. I'm sorry. Now it's going to take us to the first screen. You can't get the menu back? No, no, I'm afraid that we're stuck on the one menu. I know. I'll give you the menu. How to click on the right icon, I don't know. All right, let's try to get from the try to get the focal picture here or here, okay, whatever. So move it down. Yes, go in or see what's going on. 
in just a second. And, and, and so in other words, we have to come to these values. Now, there have been some successful events in Saudi Arabia and other places to try to bring these kids back, and to try to turn them around. Uh, uh, the overall picture doesn't look right. Because what we're afraid is going to happen, especially in Europe, is that one of these groups is going to use an unconventional uh, weapon. It doesn't have to be a nuclear war. I'm talking about something much simpler than that, a dirty bomb, which is very easy to assemble, by the way. You need a small amount of radioactive uh, material. Uh, you use Kudra and top to airborne it. You're surrounded by four or five kilos or 12 or 15 pounds of TNT or C4. You blow it up, hallelujah. Okay, you got a little terminal. Now think about something like that, and the targets, by the way, are either London, Paris, Berlin, or Madrid, not the United States, okay? Although they had some plans for the tubes in, uh, in Pennsylvania, and uh, the tubes in, uh, in, uh, in New York and Washington, they were thinking about that, Union Station, things like that. Uh, think about the habit, think about the, 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 the backlash against Muslims, or a lot of innocent Muslims have nothing to do with this. Uh, I, I'm not so optimistic on how all this is going to work. I think we're going to have one of these attacks a long time before the Europeans are going to wake up and start re-educating uh, the young Muslims in France, uh, Britain, uh, Spain, Germany. And that's the biggest challenge to them. It takes two or three generations to re-educate. I don't think we have that time. So I'm not very optimistic about how this thing is going to unfold. As to what to do, well, you can't stand with your hands in your pockets not doing anything. You don't stop them in Afghanistan or Pakistan. You will have them rolling all around the east coast of the United States as well. And by the way, they're very active in Latin America now. I don't know if one of the major concerns of the American security services is also what's happening in Rome's backyards. Okay, Latin America, the Triple Limiter, the borders of Paraguay, Argentina, and Brazil, but they're moving up. A year and a half ago, a cell was discovered in Trinidad. I don't know if you remember this by the FBI. Trinidad. When I think about Trinidad, I think about the addresses you give me, Roman, Coca, Cola. And you got a cell in Trinidad that wanted to blow up the fuel depot on GF JFK. Where did they come from, some of them? Well, they were hooked up with TV, they saw it, and they did the same thing. And Hezbollah is very active in Latin America. Chavez is now making love with Afghanistan in Venezuela. I mean, a lot of things happening in, in, in America's backyard, the Caribbean, in that area. So I'm afraid that we're going to have a lot of problems until we. Uh, 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 succeed to solve this problem. Another optimistic aspect would be is that most Muslims are not part of this. Okay, we have to be honest about this. Not every Muslim is a member of Al-Qaeda, Hamas, or Hezbollah. A lot of Muslims who don't buy this, who don't want to be part of this. And we should do whatever we can to help those who are uh, you know, fighting this and dealing with this in the best way. And we are, by the way. Everybody is. There's a lot of collaboration with the Egyptians, with the Jordanians, with the Moroccans. Uh, with the Algerians, a lot of things are going on with the Americans. Everybody's trying to help everybody because we don't help each other, we won't get out of this. And so there's a lot of positive things that are happening. The answer is not only military, I agree with you. When you get to the military solution, that's the last resort you have, but sometimes when you deal with these groups, it is the last thing. Um, uh, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, sorry. Let's see. Yeah, we'll is see that the that last one, one or is that the one before? Uh, well, that's the one before, but uh, oh, that's also good for you. Do you want to see this one? Let's see this also, because this one will give you an example of Hamas. This is good. Put this on. Can we put the voice on? No, I really want to see it. Can you put the voice on? Okay, cast me. You know what? You know Yeah, well, leave it, leave it, leave it, leave it. Do you have the voice? Sorry. All right. All right, okay, leave it, leave it. It's on here. Just put the voice on. Voice. 
But anyway, I don't, I, I, never mind the voice. Look, this is the kid. As he was filmed by the uh, special robot of the border police. Uh, Alright, so now you see with the sweatshirt, the suicide bomb belt is beneath the sweatshirt. Weighs about uh, 15 pounds, about 5 kilos. This is the typical, uh, 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 the typical uh, suicide, you'll see it in a moment it takes a suicide. This is why I use this movie in order to show the, uh, to show the belt. Can you get a movie? Or? Um, it's skipping, the disc might be dirty. Okay. Uh, it's not okay. I could try to take it out, but I think. Uh, no, I can't. Now you see the wire over here. This is this typical Israeli <coughs> bell door hooked up with two wires. And this is the suicide belt. This is exactly how it looks. They had 97 laboratories in the West Bank manufacturing these things. They were all destroyed in Operation Defense Shield in March 2002. That's why we don't have any more suicide bombings coming down from the West Bank. And uh, this uh, is the typical belt. A lot of Israelis got killed this way. This is what they wore on the buses. And uh, he's now given instructions from the soldiers how to take it away, how to, uh, how to take it out. Again, this kid is about 10 and a half, 11 years old. And uh, uh, he was paid uh, something like $45 to do this. And uh, this is a very good example of how the... Uh, uh, I don't know why this is not Everybody took everybody took distance when we were playing things that will blow up. Uh, uh, well, he was there on the set of actors. It's like an instructional video? Uh, well, no, this is this is exactly this is what this is what happened. This is when he was stopped at the checkpoint. This is exactly what happened. They use kids all the time, by the way. They kind of started to use kids, dogs, whatever. He's being shouted. He's being shouted instructions by the Israeli soldiers to how to take out the suicide belt. Because nobody wanted to get killed, not even by the soldiers. They're standing about 30, 40 feet away from right. But uh, again, this was the major killer of the, of the Second Intifada, what you're saying here. This is the typical classic Palestinian suicide belt. Israeli soldiers telling them to take them off now because they don't want to get killed, they don't want him to go. Oh, he's in the checkpoint. Yeah. What you're seeing is live. This is exactly what it is. He's not playing it. It's not instructive video. This is exactly what happened. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't know why this is stuck with doing this. It never happened before. Do you want to go to the next one? Uh, I, I'm afraid I just hope this is not the second thing. I want you to see how this thing blows up to the impact of the session. Because they're going to take him away and they're going to blow up the charge because nobody wanted to deal with the charge. And this is not the biggest thing they use. They use much bigger things than this. They use 15 kilos, 20 kilos, which is about 60 pounds, 35 pounds, 40 pounds. So you said he, go, he went back home and his parents didn't want to have anything to do with No, I guess that we thought after he was interrogated, because what we wanted to find out is who sent him. We never bumped into this before. They so he paid him $40 to do it. And the reason, by the way, he's told to get undressed is not too humiliated. He had a few incidents where young men, uh, uh, Actually, it happened uh, one time from Gaza in a crossing point called Yisufim when one of the soldiers, one of the women officers, saw a man who was 30 years old crossing through the checkpoint, and everything here was much bigger than the normal, okay, much bigger than the normal. So she told him to get undressed, which was very humiliating for him because she was a woman. But she sensed that something was wrong, and then what we found out, he had a diaper, and on the diaper he had four and a half kilos of TNT stuck up his behind oh and all around his penis. Okay, he was not the source, he was transferring the explosives to do it to somebody else on the other side. So from that moment on, they're all told to get undressed in order to make sure 
This is the kid himself. See how little he is. He's about 10, 11 years old, nothing. All right, this is bus number five, using off street, October 1994. 15 kilos of TNT used by Hamas suicide bombing, one of the first suicide bombing attacks. Uh, again, I felt probably won't be able to say anything because everything is stuck. Uh, but I just want to give a general idea of what it really looks like. Okay, this is a bus, packed up bus. Using off street is something like Main Street in Israel, okay? One of the busiest uh, uh, streets in Tel Aviv. Uh, and what the, the reason they filmed these things was to study and to draw out of lessons of how to deal with this. There are two ways of evacuating a suicide bombing case. Israel and the Americans use a term which is called scoop and run. The Europeans use a term which is called stay and play. They all remember Princess Diana was stuck in the tunnel for about uh, two and a half hours, which is five minutes away from the hospital. Our method is to get them into the emergency room as fast as possible, those who can be safe. Okay? And the Americans do the same way. I'm going to try to straighten it out. What? I'm going to try to straighten it out. Yeah, give me a because uh, just give me one minute, okay? We're already watching this. We might as well watch this properly. See if we can do something about this. Any more questions in the meantime? Yeah, sure. Um, how would you say, I mean, not that it matters, I guess it's two points of view on, on what's going on in Israel, but yeah. how would you say, I guess, from both perspectives, was the beginning of, I guess, the Gaza Strip and where the conflict started? Well, look, if you want to start the history of Israel, really kind of no, I have time for that. Yeah. Uh, look, focusing on Gaza, look, uh, uh, let's put it this way. From my point, I'm representing, I'm just representing myself as Jonathan the Israeli. I think the two-state solution is the only reasonable solution for this mess, okay? I don't need Gaza, I don't need the West Bank. I can get along with that, okay? What most Israelis want is not territories, but security guarantees, okay? We do have our extreme right wing. We do have people who do not want to get out. That's true. But I would like to argue that it would be possible to solve this problem. My problem is not so much with the West Bank, with Salam Fayyad and Abu Mazen, Fatah, more moderate, secular, pragmatic approach, like it is with Hamas. Hamas adheres to the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood and works for Iran. If you get to the website, your website's in English, and see the Hamas Treaty, and read very carefully all, all, all the articles of the treaty, and please, instead of Israel and Jews, put Georgia and Christians, okay? And ask yourselves, what would you do in a similar, what do you want us to, I don't want to become an Islamic Republic. They want to destroy Israel, and start an Islamic Republic in place. I'm not going to be, I'm, I'm not going to be an Islamic Republic no more than Georgia or Alabama are planning to be an Islamic Republic. So what are we going to talk about with Hamas? I don't want Gaza, I need Gaza like a hole in my okay? The reason we're keeping the siege on Gaza is we want to prevent the rocket firing and the ammunition, the tons of ammunition that are pouring in there all the time. And if they stop that, even if they want to have a little stock in public, I don't really give a damn, as long as they leave us alone. So what's going to happen with this, I don't really know. I, 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 I'm no prophet with this, and uh, of course there are many versions, you can hear all the versions from all sides. The fact is that Israel did evacuate Gaza in 2005. And uh, uh, I think that most Israelis there, nobody even wants to think about going back to Gaza. We want quiet. We don't want rockets out of a quarter million Israelis that are living around Gaza. We don't want suicide bombers from the West Bank no more than we would want this over. Okay? And uh, uh, as I said, I think that the solution to this problem is very pragmatic, very easy, uh, as long as we can get some basic security guarantees that we can coexist and live together. Okay? But you know, it's an unfair question, and, no, and more than that, it's an unfair answer to you, because I can't wrap up the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in two and a half minutes. Okay. This is, there's, there's much more to what I said, of course, and maybe another opportunity we can talk about this more in length. But, uh,
Well, I, apparently this is not working. Oh, no, it's okay. Thank you very much for your help. You should have used my computer to get it. Right? I'm sorry, it's my fault. Okay. Um, any more questions? Or? Yeah. Sure, go ahead. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, I have a copy of this. No, but I, no, this I can't. No, this. Uh, I can send you some things on this. Just leave your card. I'll send you a few things. Uh, uh, sure. I'll leave my card also. If you have any questions or anything you want to know or any other things you want to ask me about, please feel free. Just, just remind me who you are and uh, uh, where you come from, okay? Because I'll know this from Atlanta and uh, from this presentation. Um, first of all, I want to thank you for going through an annual course in less than an hour and ten minutes. <laughs> yeah. I uh, accept my, but also understand my frustration with this. Uh, 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 two of the major courses that I give, one of them is ideologies and philosophies of terrorist organizations and guerrilla movements, and the other one is counterterrorism. And what I did here is sort of merge these two topics together in order, first of all, to outline the major challenges democracies or any country has with counterterrorism. But at the same time, yeah, that, that's uh, one of the phenomena, by the way, is beheading in the buses. Heads used to fly all over the place, and then you have to match the right head to the right body. Now, how can you identify who the head it belongs to? Ladies and gentlemen, that's suicide bombing. Okay, without the romantic of freedom fighting or not freedom, then this is exactly how it looks like. Anyway, if you turn it off, I, I don't think you can see anything like this. It's just, uh, sorry. Uh, thank you, anyway. Uh, so, uh, as I said, I'll leave my card over here. Please feel free to write to me, ask whatever you want. Uh, uh, are there any courses here on terrorism, are specifically on terrorism? Yeah. What? Quite a few. Quite a few. Okay, great. So, uh, uh, and, and when my book will come out, I'll send you a copy, and uh, you'll have uh, at least you know another insight of how, uh, anyway, how I see the difference between the secular and the religion. That, this is the major thing that I'm interested in uh, in the past, I would say, four or five years, between the secular and the religious uh, agenda. And since it seems that terrorism is going to be around at least for the next 10, 15 years, we're going to have a lot of things to talk about. That's for sure. Unfortunately. Thank you very much. Right, Yeah, sure. And this is the best part of weather that we're going to have on this lecturing tour. Tomorrow I'm flying to Chicago, then to Minneapolis, uh, then Washington, Philadelphia, and then Ottawa and Toronto. Uh,